The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. So we are in Ephesians again today, Ephesians 4, uh, 17 through 19. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Roberta, for sharing. I feel a little boomy. You guys will sort that out. We're thankful for our sound man. Thank you for worship team uh, for leading us um, in, in praise and worship of our Lord this morning. It's a privilege to be led by you guys. Uh, my name's Danny. I'm one of the pastors here at Central Bible Church, and we have been walking through the book of Ephesians uh, for the last number of weeks, and we're going to do th- so throughout the summer. Um, But we're specifically focusing on Ephesians chapter 4. The first two weeks, Ashua kind of gave us the groundwork of Ephesians uh, chapter 1 through 3, and we're camping for the remaining six weeks of the summer on Ephesians 4 specifically. And we find ourselves here at a portion of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, which we're going to unpack in two weeks. And Paul begins to unpack now that he's laid the groundwork for the gifts and the things that we have received in Jesus and the unity that we experience as the body of Christ that he calls us to, to now understand how we are to live. And so uh, we're in our series, Alive, and we're learning what it means to become like Jesus together. And if you look at Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 10, like reading rainbow, you don't want to just take my word for it. You can look later. We get the purpose statement For the book of Ephesians. It's this idea that God, since the beginning, is working to unite all things, both in heaven and on earth, to him through Jesus, the promised kingdom bringer. And this idea of him bringing all things to himself helps to shed light on those beautiful realities that Paul unpacked for the church in Ephesus and for us today. Salvation, the way that he's gifted us, how we live into community, how he desires for us to interact with him and our world. God desires to draw all things to himself through the giver of true and unincorruptible life, Jesus. And that brings us to our text today. He brings strong instruction for us on the things that we're to take off, the things that we're ceasing to stop walking in. He gives a strong prohibition for the things that we are to avoid. And next week, Russell's going to help us understand those things which we are to put on. So this week is very much a we're taking these things off. And just so we're not vulnerably naked, next week we'll look at these things that we're supposed to put on, right? But we're going to leave us in that kind of in-between space in between this Sunday and next. So before we dive into the text, I'd like to lead us in a prayer. This is a prayer that was actually given to me by an Anglican friend of mine. And it's one of their prayers of confession that they pray every morning setting their hearts right before the Lord. Let me pray for us. Merciful God, 
We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name. Amen. I appreciate that prayer, especially with the things that we're unpacking today, because there are ways in which I have allowed the thinking of this world to draw me away from God and to crowd my mind and to not love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. There are ways that I've fallen short of loving, not to say even liking, my neighbor, I want to delight in his will. I want to walk in his ways. But that's not my natural practice. That's not the natural way that we are bent. And so I need, we need to participate with the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in us to make that possible. We need to know that there's hope to live differently than the world invites us to live. We need to see that there's something more than what it is that the world offers us. And so this morning, if we as believers are bound to the worldly ways of thinking, we need to understand that we are living in a self-inflicted captivity. If you are in Christ, then you have been freed. But we are, we are drawn to willingly take back up those things which Christ has freed us from, the things that bind us to this world. It says that the old things have gone and the new things have come. But old flames are tempting. And be, perhaps it's because old ruts are well-worn. Perhaps it's because lesser loves, while not ultimately satisfying, do satisfy for a time. Or maybe it's because we do think that the things the world has to offer do bring life. So Paul warns us strongly in Ephesians 4. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Weighty words. I'm sure you've had somebody come to you and say, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which do you want first? It would be ignorant for us to say, well, just give me the good news. To not contend with those things which are difficult for us to deal with, but nonetheless true. Why does Paul instruct us with such strong language? Now I say this and testify in the Lord and the authority of the one who brought you from death to life that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. I think there are at least three reasons that the Apostle Paul warns us in so strong a way. Because we once walked in those ways. And the culture still invites us to walk in those ways. Number two, because we're liable to make a bad trade, new life for old death. And because the consequences of doing so are devastating. You may have noticed that old patterns are hard to break. There are shelves of books that are designed to help us make healthy choices to, bake, make, to break bad habits. 
There are coaches both for life and fitness that help us attain our goals. And we may even be vulnerable with a couple of people that help us uh, be aware of those areas in which we want us to grow and and to hold us accountable. And yet we feel those well-worn ruts, those old ways, that old flame, that addiction, that bottle, that gallon of ice cream, that constant stream of media, and those things at least satisfy or perhaps distract for a time. And so we indulge our old way, just this once, just one last time. Tomorrow will be different. And we're, we're liable to make that bad trade. It's like someone wise once said, consider the Bitcoin. You guys know what a Bitcoin is? No? Okay, we'll get there. All right. So May 22nd is known as, I'm sure you celebrated it, Bitcoin Pizza Day, okay? And here's why. I was reading an article just this week about a man who used Bitcoin back in 2010 to purchase two large pizzas from Papa John's, set your sights higher, and if you don't know what Bitcoins are, here's what Google has to say, okay? Bitcoin is a type of digital currency in which a record of transactions is maintained and new units of currency are generated by the computational solution of mathematical problems in which operates independently of a central bank. Do you get it now? Okay, brass tacks, Bitcoin equals nerd money. That's way easier. Bitcoin is nerd money, okay? And so this guy, nine years ago, spent something that wasn't very valuable. But in the last nine years, Bitcoin has become incredibly valuable. In 2010, the value of a single Bitcoin was minimal. And so a hungry man, we'll name him now, Laszlo, used 10,000 Bitcoin to have two large pizzas delivered to his home. And at that time, Laszlo spent the equivalent of $41 on Bitcoin for two Papa John's pizzas. The problem is that the value of the Bitcoin has increased substantially since Laszlo bought those two Papa John's pizzas. In fact, just nine months after his pizza purchase, Bitcoin became equal to the value of the U.S. dollar. Nine months after the pizza purchase, which, for those keeping score at home, means that he bought two Papa John's pizzas for $10,000. That was nine months after he purchased it in 2010. Okay? Nerd money is for nerds. Does anybody know how much the Bitcoin is currently being traded for? No? See? Thank you. Nerd in the back. New father nerd in the back. Yes. The, the, as of yesterday, it trades for roughly $9,813 for a single Bitcoin. Meaning that Laszlo's two pizzas purchased nine years ago were purchased with enough Bitcoin to net him today $98,130,000. That is a bad trade for two pizzas. Not seeing the value of what he had, Laszlo gave up something of value to satisfy his short-term appetites. And Paul knows we're likely to do something similar, to trade the new life in Christ, which is incorruptible in him, for something that is corruptible and doesn't last. In our passage, Paul uses words like futile and ignorant and alienated from God to describe our choice to live apart from him. 
Paul spent the first three chapters drawing our attention to the beauty of life in Christ, spiritual blessings that we have in him, his freely given grace, God's salvation for us, his redemption, and on and on. It is absolutely beautiful. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to catch up. And the thing that the world offers us to value is futile or vanity, like chasing after the wind. This isn't just a New Testament idea. It occurs most often in one Old Testament book. Anybody want to guess which word this idea, futility, vanity, shows up the most in the Old Testament? Wow, there we go. Yeah, some, we, we went through Ecclesiastes just uh, a season ago, and so thank you for paying attention. Yeah, the answer is Ecclesiastes. And King Solomon, who is the writer of Ecclesiastes, was something of an expert in the ways of the world. He was given God-given wisdom, and with his authority as king and the resources available to him, he spared no expense at trying to understand how he could satiate his own needs and desires with the ways of the world. And so it should be instructive to us that at the end of that, he uses the same language that Paul does to talk about what the world has to offer. It's vanity. It's futile. It's like chasing after the wind. Looking to the things of the world to fulfill us will never satisfy. And yet we are likely to do that. To trade that which is incorruptible, the life in Christ, his gifts offered to us for some pizza. May we not set aside lasting things for things that do not last. Because the consequences are devastating. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from their life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of heart, they have become callous. The word calloused here is, carries with it the idea of ceasing to feel pain. I think it's fair to say in our culture that we value pleasure to the point that we make pain avoidance seem like a virtue. We have elevated it to an art form. But losing feeling as a result of pain management carries with it consequences. I had a fitting reminder that happened just a couple of months ago. We had the opportunity as a family to fly back and visit my parents who lived on the East Coast. And we had on our mind to see the sights. We were going to go to New York and Philly and D.C. We were going to romp around Delaware, which is where my parents live. We were going to eat good food. We were going to make memories. We had spent... We had planned to spend 12 days there. But the problem is that a week before we got there, uh, my dad had incredible back pain, more than any back pain that he'd experienced in his life. And he asked us to begin praying. He began to see doctors. Nothing was availing the hurt that he felt. And for those who are familiar with that, he tightened up and there was inflammation in his sacroiliac joint. That sounds, for those of you who don't know back pain or side pain, it sounds like a, a Dr. Seuss character, but the sacroiliac joint is, is, is no laughing matter. And it tightened up, and he said it felt like a charley horse or a muscle spasm that continued on and on with unrelenting pain. I knew this uh, beyond just his words because the second day we were there, I went to take him to a chiropractic appointment and he could barely tolerate the pain as we drove the mile from his house to the chiropractor's. 
it was too much for him, and truthfully, it was too much for me. That was the most pain I had ever seen my dad in, and he and the doctors and us and his family just wanted him to receive relief from that. And so, in an effort to bring relief, in an effort to allow time for the inflammation to to die down, the doctors prescribed the heavy stuff, the narcotics, the opiates. And it made the pain just north of tolerable, but it also deadened my dad. It was like he wasn't there. He was present in the room, but his eyes were vacant, and he wasn't present with us. He was emotionally withdrawn. It was like he was somewhere else. One of the wildest things about this is that looking back, my dad said he didn't feel as if there was any difference in the way that he was engaging with us. He had become calloused, and he was unaware of the numbing that had taken place and the degree to which it brought distance between him and those that he loved. For those who have grandparents in the room, you will know that this is a pretty weighty statement. Not even his grandkids who had flown over thousands of miles to come see him could bring a smile to his face. That's the level to which he had become numb, calloused, not able to feel anything. But we can be like that. Oh, by the way, before I move on, he is doing better now. I didn't want to leave you there. Like, I would be bombarded. What happened? He is doing much better. Thank you for those that have been praying. And uh, he's back at work. And um, he still feels pain. uh, But it's something where he's been able to come off of those narcotics. um, And he's uh, beginning to find health and healing. And so we're thankful for that. But we can be like that, can't we? When we have something that numbs us and we're not even aware of the degree to which it brings a level of distance between us and others. We aren't aware that our hearts are being hardened and calloused. The Bible uses language like that. And the problem is that we're not static individuals. We don't stay in one place. We are always being formed by and conformed to something. Paul uses that idea in Romans 12, right? About we are either conformed to the pattern of this world or we have the capacity to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can know and do God's will for us. I read a book that was awesome. And if you like books that are awesome, you should read this one too. It's called We Become What We Worship. It's a biblical theology of idolatry by G.K. Beale. What that essentially means is he went through the Bible and studied every place in which this idea of idolatry came up where God's people exchanged the worship of God for the worship of created things. And he noticed that there was specific language that was tied to this idea of idolatry. We're going to look at one place in Psalm 115. We'll go back for a second. Let me read it for you. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, Why should the nation say, where is our God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them, that is the idols, become like them. 
so do all who trust in them. The psalmist first points out something that is readily apparent to us. These idols that are made by human hands do not have the capacity to use the physical features that they've been given. But then he says something in verse 8 that I want us to hone in on. Those who make them, that is the idols, become like them. So do those who trust in them. As Beale studies the kind of language in Scripture, the deadening of senses, eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear, mouths that cannot speak, these symptoms in almost every case are linked to the sin of idolatry. And most often, those, that language, eyes that can't hear, or eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear, are used not so much of the idols, but of the people that fashion them or those that worship them. And so Beale sums up his study in this way. We resemble what we revere, either for ruin or restoration. That's a statement worth writing down, worth committing to memory. So I'll give you a minute. I, I have printed it, and it sits in my guitar case. I see it every time I pick up my guitar. And I do that because I need to be reminded that I am always being formed towards something. Am I being restored to, from death to life in my worship, or am I being conformed to the world towards things that are futile? If we understand that worship forms us, the question of what we are worshiping becomes a very important question. And if you hear that word and you're tempted to think, okay, worship, well, you're preaching to the choir. We're here two hours on a Sunday. This is something that happens daily. This is something that happens moment by moment. And so to better evaluate what it is that we're worshiping, think through questions like this. What receives my attention and my affection and my praise? Where am I spending my time and my money? What am I preoccupied in my thinking about? What things or the lack thereof raise up anxiety in me? It's these kind of questions that help us evaluate who or what we're worshiping. Because again, we're not static individuals. What are we investing our resources in? Importantly, what are those things that we consume to the degree that they begin to consume us? What are the things that we are choosing to give ourselves over to? Ephesians 4.19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. These are descriptors of people who have become callous towards God, and this is the result of that kind of thinking. And I'll be honest with you. When I read this sentence, perhaps as a bit of a defense mechanism, I begin to think about other people, not myself. I know people like that. I'm not like those people. Sensual, greedy, impure. Nope, I'm good. Here's the problem. God's call to living holy, to be as he is, set apart, so that we can be a light to the nations, isn't relative. So I bring myself comfort, but comfort that's not ultimately satisfying when I say at least I'm not like blank. At least I don't do blank. But here's perhaps a better question. What am I being formed by? And what am I being formed to? As we dig into the words of this passage, 
we become aware of the insidious potential of sensuality and greed and impurity. Is there genuine life in me? Or am I, as Jesus described the Pharisees, a whitewashed tomb? Do I satisfy the letter of the law while blowing right past the spirit of the law? Remember, beginning in the book of Ephesians, God's plan and purpose is to, in Christ Jesus, unite everything in heaven and on earth and everyone to him. When we become calloused towards God, when we begin forming idols, then we ourselves are formed into our own likeness rather than into the character of God. In this passage, the word sensuality carries with it the idea of seeking freedom with no boundaries, giving our desires unrestricted access to every area of our life. Harold Honer wrote one of the definitive works on the book of Ephesians. It was sitting at our house, and my daughter looked at it and said, wow, Dad, that's bigger than Harry Potter. I got a little street cred. I didn't tell her I only read like 30 pages of it, but that'll be our little secret. And he writes, speaking of this kind of sensuality, that it it describes the desire to perform unrestrained desires. It is the practice of sin without concern as to what God or people think. Similarly, in describing greed, he says that it's not a compulsion, it is a compulsion to want to take more regardless of whether or not I actually need it. It is an arrogant greediness the spirit which tries to take advantage of its fellow men. Do you hear that? This kind of behavior is the exact opposite, the antithesis of what Jesus is trying to do in bringing us together united in him. We're thinking of ourselves rather than what he would desire for us and for others. And so as we look at this text, as we look at words like sensuality and greed do we have the, do we have, I'll, I'll sanitize it, do we have the courage? Do we have the courage to pray the prayer of the psalmist? As we look at this text, do we have the willingness to subject ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit and pray this week as we look at this text, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We need to ask God to bring conviction to those areas that may not line up with his kingdom purposes, that may not show the character of God in us. Why? Because I'm prone to being callous. And I can't even see the ways in which the hardness of my own heart separates me from God and from others and for that which he wants me to live. I want to think about the word freedom for a minute because I think it's implicit in our passage. I believe that we, specifically as Western Americans in the 21st century, have a skewed understanding of what freedom means. Give me a second to unpack it. I believe that in some of, some of our challenge ideologically with the word freedom is that we confuse it with autonomy. Philosophy describes personal autonomy in this way. The capacity to decide for oneself and to pursue a course of action in one's life, often regardless of any particular moral content. Now good old Merriam-Webster 
describes freedom as the quality or state of being free, such as liberation from restraint or from the power of another. Therein lies the rub. When we think of freedom, we need to both ask, what am I being freed from? And what am I being freed to? Paul would instruct us that the freedom to live irrespective of the will of God or the needs of others is in fact bondage. To seek personal autonomy is to live apart from the life of Jesus and leads us to futility and ultimately to death. To illustrate this, I had the opportunity just a few months ago to attend a a new life ceremony or a graduation at the harbor, which is a, uh, a discipleship recovery program that's a part of Portland Rescue Mission. And if you ever have the opportunity to go to one of these graduations, I encourage you to do it. It's beautiful. And one of the reasons it is is it's because it's an expression of these brave men who are beginning to find freedom from the old patterns of thinking and who are being equipped to walk in the ways that Jesus calls us all to. And so he had, admi- he had invited me to come. He had just celebrated a year of sobriety. And he shared something there that I wanted to share with you because I think it's profound. And it speaks to this idea of freedom versus autonomy. He said, I used to think that my freedom meant doing what I want, when I want to do it, my own man, owing nothing to no one. But in coming to Jesus, I've realized that freedom invites, invite, it involves choosing to put myself under the right things, choosing to live his life, choosing his community over a life for me. See, freedom apart from God's life isn't freedom at all. I love so many parts of Roberta's testimony this morning, but the one that stuck out to me is she said, I came and so much of what I was doing was functioning around myself. And I hadn't yet thought, how does God have for me to contribute to this body? As she began to ask that question, I believe she found new levels of freedom because she was now able to begin exercising the gifts that God has given her. I was texting with Andrew Zellers this week as we were kind of talking about this idea of freedom and autonomy and its insidiousness in our culture. And we just think about it. If we believe that the true life of Jesus is found in him and those who apprentice him, then we aren't fully able to enjoy the good life unless we practice life with Jesus and his people. One example, think about the gifts of the Spirit. Each of us have been gifted in a way that benefits the whole, right? That pithy Oshawa phrase that I loved, if you stopped, what would drop, right? Mic drop, right? This idea of if I wasn't present and I'm using my gift, something should be missing. So let's go back to our question. What am I being freed from? What am I being freed to? If I've been freed from futile thinking, that I've been freed into a community where I am both free to use the gifts that he's gifted me with, and I'm also free to benefit as others use their gifts, and together we get to build up the church. I need you. You need me. And together we are given the opportunity and the charge to serve Christ and one another and to serve as a fragrant offering to him as we do that. Guys, we need to combat that lie that personal autonomy is really 
freedom. One of the commentators, as I was studying this week, said this. Human beings were never intended to live merely as individuals. We were created for relation with God and others. Catch this. What we need is not self-expression and self-satisfaction, but self-surrender and self-attachment to God, with whom all things are ours to enjoy. So what do we do? Paul implores us to leave the former ways and to not willingly pick back up the patterns of this world that that bind us to callousness, hard-heartedness, and death. We need, as Ephesians chapter 118 says, the Spirit of God to enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Because a calloused mind cannot find its own way to healing and to freedom. But if we are in Christ by grace through his Spirit, we can experience that life apart from those calluses to begin to find freedom from the ways of the world. In closing, as I studied this week, I came across two simple words in that commentary by Klein Snodgrass, right? Pretty good name, had to share it. And these two words that help us to live in a way that are apart from the life of this world, the battle specifically, numbness and isolation, are sensitivity and truth. If callousness, if bondage, If lies and false belief are our default, then we need to pray for the Spirit to give us sensitivity and to help us understand what is true. I need it. I need the Holy Spirit to permeate. I need the gospel to permeate my thinking so that I'm no longer bound to those things that I once was. Please catch this. When we feel captive to old ways, and we are in Christ, we need to understand that we sit in a cell that has been locked from the inside. If we have been made alive in Christ, we no longer need to sit in self-inflicted captivity, but we can walk in his freedom. And we need to work and pray for a heart that is sensitive, sensitive to both God and others. So this isn't just an intellectual ascent. Much of the language in this passage talks about the way we conceive things and perceive things in our minds, but it has implication for our behavior. And it's not simply something that we do with God. We need to press into our relationships with others in this room, in our body, through uh, home communities, through coffee dates, through phone calls late at night to have a dogged pursuit of those things which we are tempted to be hard-hearted in, those places which we have taken hook, line, and sinker what the world offers. We need to be reminded when we are tired and we are hungry and we are lonely by the people in this room that our greatest joy is found in the life of God and that through Jesus, he is seeking to unite us and others and all things to him. And so let me pray as we close with the words of Paul, with his heart for believers then and believers now. Would you pray with me? I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? Amen. As we transition now to our time of communion, our day and our worship culminates there. It's the opportunity for us to acknowledge that our shared need has been met by the finished work of Jesus. And that instead of having calloused hearts, instead of sitting in isolation, that we are choosing through the freedom that he offers to engage in relationship with him and in community with others. And so we would ask that this time, specifically in light of our text, that no one goes to the communion table alone today. We need to combat those lies and those scripts that we are given, that we either take on ourselves or that we've heard from the world. And so we'd ask that you take time to do business with Jesus, to go to him in prayer today. You can pray with people that are in the pews right next to you. I would also ask right now that as I'm talking, we would have our leaders head towards the communion tables. That is pastors, elders, staff, community group leaders, just to be present and just to pray. And I'd ask for two areas, those areas of sensitivity and truth, that we would pour into those, that we would ask the Spirit to reveal to us the ways in which we have become insensitive, that we have become isolated or that we have followed the ways of the If you're sitting in bondedness and you think that's great and these are awesome words, but I still don't feel free, we have leaders that would love to pray with you. We would would ask that you would come and you would do business with the Holy Spirit, that you would ask for these things which he says are true in the word of God to become true in your heart, that you would believe them and they would bring about a change in behavior as we come to the table, would we come with gratitude for that which we've received in Jesus and the new life that offers chain-breaking freedom. Amen. Amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.